From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Joel Garvalia Marano is a chaplain for Asante Hospice in Southern Oregon, has been a spiritual director at a senior living center, and a police and fire chaplain. Thank you for being here, Joel, on the Oregon Grapevine. Uh, my honor. What does the job of a hospice chaplain entail? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I come out of a, an ordained tradition, so I come out of a religious tradition. Um, so I speak from uh, a pastoral point of view, but the word chaplain itself comes from the uh, 15th century, was basically ascribed to the king and then became involved in religious uh, associations. Um, and the word, word capellius is basically the word for clergyman. So a chaplain is, uh, in its root, connected to a spiritual or religious approach to the healing process. That has evolved. That has kind of changed. Oftentimes, people will ask me, what's the difference between a pastor and a chaplain? I think that's very important, or a priest, or a, re- or a clergyman. What's the difference between a clergyman and a chaplain? And a pastor is usually an overseer of a congregation or parish. Could be a rabbi, could be a priest, could be a minister, could be an omen, could be, could, could be a number of different people. And their concerns are usually centered around the spiritual development or formation of the members of their particular tradition. But now a chaplain, it can be assigned to a madrid of organizations, fire department, sports teams, hospital, hospice. And a hospice chaplain, which I currently am, is concerned about connecting to both the patient and the family in this time of need. Uh, We're kind of people who offer the ministry of presence, being available, emotionally available, uh, for their journey as they as, as as grief emerges. So we bring comfort, we bring support, sometimes we bring education. When you're in a situation in a hospice setting or a, or a hospital setting, if you want to kind of go back and forth, if, because I think there's similarities there, and you walk into a room, you might or might not know what you're walking into, and you might be walking into someone who says, boy, the last thing I need in here is a religious presence. How, where, what do you do? How do you, how do you walk through that? Now, that's a great question. And each chaplain has its own approach. I, I often use humor. Uh, there's been times I've walked into a room and a person says, I'm not dying. I don't need a chaplain at a hospital. And I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> I don't think you're dying either. I just came in to visit. Uh, other times, people have an experience that's negative with a religious organization or a spiritual practice, and, and you just you back out. You walk out. You say, okay, if you need me, call me. Uh, I'm here for you. Sometimes they come from a tradition that don't doesn't want you to pray for them. There are a couple of traditions in the Christian realm who don't want your prayers because they think you pray to a, a, a an unknown God. And so you just say, okay. You try to engage them. You try to try to find similarities. But always, always you respect the patient, their needs, and their wishes. I'm going to assume yes, but I'm going to ask this anyway. Do you think there is a place for spiritual care in medical settings, and why and what is it? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much trying to keep my job by answering this question. (laughs) But 
Uh, yeah, I've got a I've got a doctorate in spirituality and aging, and the one thing I had to do was research. And there's numerous research that shows that spirituality is an integral part of the healing process or the grieving process, and should be incorporated in medical intervention or in hospice care. And so, what what we do know is that people want to connect. This is a, oftentimes illness is a form of alienation, not only from family members, but from their own authentic self. And so uh, we try to create belonging. We try to create uh, opportunities for people to ha- have a safe place to share raw emotions. Um, we try to help unpack psychologically or emotionally what's going on uh, as it connects mostly to um, their sense of identity. So, you know, 10% of my interventions or assessments or engagements have a religious component to it. Most of the time it's just listening, it's being uh, present, and it's being open. When it's not a situation where someone is dying or sick, even in the hospital, you've talked about being with police and fire, you've, and also, of course, at a senior, a senior place. Let's go to police and fire for a second. What is your role in those circumstances? Is it just for tragedy or is it a general being there? It's for both. I mean, uh, I can speak from a direct experience with the fire department. I was a firefighter and I was also uh, in the military as a firefighter. So I I understand um, from my experiences as a firefighter, some of the things that I went through, some of the things that I had to to, to process when I saw death or I saw trauma or I saw uh, things that I could not necessarily comprehend. So um, I became a fire chaplain because of my love of the fire service and the fire department. But um, oftentimes it is associated with trauma. That's number one reason why you're called in, uh, either to an ER or to the actual scene. When the scene, uh, if you're called to a scene and there's there's a trauma, it's usually a death. Not always, but it's usually a death, and it could be a, a, a tragic motorcycle accident, car accident, bicycle accident, uh, or suicide. You're, you're working with the family. Majority of the time right there, there's no one else there uh, that can be present to them emotionally and spiritually. The police officers and the fire officers are doing what they need to do to provide the services that they were called to do. And so you're, 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 you're working within the trauma to provide comfort and support to the family in an immediate way. Then uh, there's some long-term bereavement things that a chaplain can do, but there's also other organizations out there that can assist and also therapy. So that's that's the role of a police fire chaplain. I uh, oftentimes will work also with the fire department uh, personnel who are struggling with witness or providing care to the individual who has um, died or to a child who is drowned, or to hospital staff who are dealing with ongoing COVID cases and witnessing death. So um, there's a role there for emergency management chaplaincy, and it's much to the immediacy of the incident. Is there also a role for let's say a, a an official, either it's a hospital person or a fire or police person, who the immediacy of the trauma is past, but the aftermath is still ongoing. Is there a place where the chaplain then steps in to try to help? 
Yeah, if, if you build relationships. I mean, our relationship, for example, I know your mom uh, when she was living. I knew your mom when she passed. We built a we built a friendship, and that friendship has continued. Uh, and a lot of times, it's centered around uh, connecting again with people that you've created an emotional, uh, intimate uh, relationship with because of the incident. Uh, but then there's also other organizations, such as bereavement organizations in Southern Oregon, like Winter Spring or Therapists. And I believe uh, the police department, I know the fire department has a therapist on call as well. So, yes, uh, with the families, we try to connect them with organizations in town that can help with the bereavement or grief process or if they need immediate needs. Let's move to a senior living place. I know you were at the Rogue Valley Manor. There's similarities with with certainly the manor in Eugene and other places. The job is not necessarily religious-based, as you pointed out. It's a spiritual base, but not everybody who's there, they're not dying. They're, why are you there? Why is a person there who's a chaplain? What's the need and what's the process? To harass them. That's been my, that's been my goal. <laughs> <laughs> and mean. you're good at it. Yeah, I am damn good at it. But uh, <laughs> but no, to be serious, is to build connection. When I left hospital chaplaincy and became uh, director of spiritual care at the Rogue Valley Manor, which is a continuing care retirement facility, uh, I realized that was actually more of a pastoral role than it was a clinical role. And that meant I was going to build relationships with these people for more than one week or two weeks or one event. And so uh, I had to rethink how I provided spiritual care or um, emotional support with uh, that that clientele, with those people, with those friends that I would call now friends. You know, I laughed because a a number of people who are entering into retirement communities are baby boomers, you know, and I'm just at the butt end of baby boomers, Gen X baby boomer. And they look at the world totally different than uh, the GI generation or the silence. And so, and many of them are, are non, either neither non-religious or have not been religious for a long period of time. It was funny because oftentimes I would go in and I, I, they would be in the health center and I'd say, are you part, I'd, I'd do my spiritual assessment, my spiritual screening. And I'd say, are you part of a religious tradition? You know, because I think part of a good chaplaincy is connecting people to community whether it's religious community, civic community, or their community at that community they live. And they say, yeah, I'm Methodist. And, you know, I'd say, Have you, would you like me to contact the local Methodist church? She says, oh, no, that's okay. It's been 70 years since they've been Methodist or even attended, <laughs> attended a Methodist church. So, you know, you learn, you realize that's, a, that's, a, that's the question that really isn't important to ask because they're asking, they're answering the question because they, were either baptized or they, as a baby, they went to they went to VBS or Sunday school, but that part of uh, their life is still associated with their 16 year old self or 10 year old self. So uh, first and foremost, it's a community, and you become more of a shepherd of that community, and that community is diverse. Unlike a church where you're connected to a spiritual direct tradition or you're connected to a, an ecumenical understanding of Christianity, the manor, you know, the number one group of people who are coming into manors are nuns, non-affiliated, you know, white, upper-class, Anglo-Saxon, um, are not affiliated with religious communities. And so you've got to learn a language 
most important, you've got to learn a language to connect to them. What do they value? What is What gives them meaning? Uh, what gives them hope? And sometimes when you enter into a room that you had not been able to build a relationship with that person yet and they're dying, you, you cheat. You look around the room and you see what's on the walls. And then you try to connect. You're trying to build a trust relationship to get to a point that we can get a little bit more intimate and ask either the existential questions or the important questions that will help this person in their transitions. In your experience, as people age and perhaps get closer to death, whether they're old or whether they aren't, do they tend to, obviously some people don't, but do many people start to ask kind of those questions and say, I'm ready for this conversation? Maybe it's too late, maybe it's not too late, but they want to have more depth or not? Yes and no. They're asking the questions, but they're not asking them that way. They're usually tied to anxiety or trauma in their life that's unresolved. They're engaged in questions uh, that allow them to retain control because they've had control most of their life and they're, they're losing control over their bodily functions or um, cognitive abilities. So the questions are being asked. They're just not being asked in uh, those ways, religious ways, or even um, anything connected to uh, a desire for help. That's been my experience. I don't want to universally claim that, but they're they're asking the they're asking the, the questions. You need to be there for a while and listen so that you best understand what they what they're saying. Because you know the number one thing a chaplain has to do is to get in touch with their shit, so you're not projecting it all over the place, and and to deal with your own woundedness or brokenness, so you're not then pushing it off on the people you're 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 ministering to or serving or or loving. And so, uh, yeah, they're asking the questions, but it's not, it's not like you see in the movies. It's usually centered around uh, conflict and crisis, unresolved issues with family members, yeah, or um, relinquishing their identity. Uh, they always were this person. They can't be that person anymore, and they're struggling with it, but they can't, they can't name it. Are there any anecdotes you can share, any personal experiences you can tell us? Not for free. <laughs> uh, yes, I could tell you my opinions. That's all they are. In hospice chaplaincy, one of the things that I know that works in a time of grief, the only thing that I ever prescribe in a time or uh, share or recommend in a time of grieving is continue to talk to and continue to talk about the person that you are losing or have lost. That's been one of the most helpful things uh, in my 30-year career of being in ministry that I've found to be helpful in the, in the loss, grieving, hurt, bereavement process. A couple other things I would say is that, you know, when someone passes away, your best friends, uh, people who love you are going to say the dumbest things. Just learn how to forgive them. They don't know what to say. And, 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 and oftentimes the people I'm talking to say, I did that. I said stupid things when my friend's husband passed, and now my husband passed, and I hope I don't say the same thing that I did then. And, you know, so, you know, just be careful, you know. And then, and then finally, in the hospice process, when, when there's a transition or a loss, um, give the room for everyone around you to grieve differently. And I just remind people, because grief is such a weird animal, 
and sometimes very, very difficult. And I say, you know, give space to the individuals. We each grieve differently. I don't think we ever get over somebody. I think it, the grief gets through us. But I tell people, give space. And, and, and you're, you're not alone and you're not going crazy. If you feel mad, sad, apathetic, um, angry, happy, all at the same time, you're not going crazy. You're grieving. What keeps you doing this work? What's your inspiration or motivation? You know, all people who go into ministry use a word called vocare, which means vocation or calling. So most of us who have discerned, and I think it's for all vocations, don't get me wrong, but in ministry we kind of adapted it. Do you feel called? Is, is God or is the universe or is your authentic self calling you into this ministry, into this experience, into this time? Um, and that happened for me, you know, over 30 years ago as I discerned. I loved God and I loved people. And, you know, sometimes I love God more, sometimes I love people more. But I loved them both, and I tried to marry them. And I was able to marry them in the vocation of being a minister-priest. Um, and I found out that I'm a much better chaplain than I am a pastor. And then, you know, you begin to do the job, and you evolve. You evolve into the person that, that you hoped you would become, and that you believe that the Creator has called you into being. And so as you begin to do those things, you begin to to minister to people's needs and meet people's needs, and you begin to make a difference in people's life. And I think that's important uh, in one's vocation. And then, you know, finally, I like working with a team of people. And hospice allows me to work with a team of people who are able to care around, care for, and care around the needs of that individual or family. And so I would say those are the, 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 the majority reasons. You know, if I find something else that I want to do that allows me to, to love God and love people better, I'd probably do it. I haven't. Anything else you want to add here, Joel, about your work or that people might want to hear? You know, um, there's education. There's requirements oftentimes for hospital chaplains to have a Master's of Divinity and have a bachelor's degree. Uh, in some hospitals, they require it, and others don't. I'd say if you have an interest in in being present to others, not necessarily teaching them religious doctrines, but you have a presence of being with others as they unpack and, and, and use the religious language to do so, then by all means, uh, go out, check out, engage with another chaplain, ask to go with them on a ride along if they're in the fire department or to, you know, uh, to join up and be a volunteer for at the hospice and see if it interests you. I think you'll find that um, I'm an experiential teacher, an experiential learner. I'm saying I would say go out and experience it and see if it's for you, if you feel called to it. Um, some people are. Some people aren't. Thank you so much, Joel Garalia Marano, who is a hospice chaplain in Southern Oregon and has been on the Oregon Grapevine. Thank you so much for being here, Joel. My pleasure. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.